Hey, listeners. If you're hearing this in December, it means that you are one of our amazing patrons who get some early access to some of our podcast content. As the most anticipated winter break in the history of education approached, I spent some time chopping it up with Natalie Vardabasso, host and educator extraordinaire of the EduCrush podcast. In this episode, we talk about the intersections of feedback, grading, cultural responsiveness, and anti-racist praxis in assessment. We found some excellent points of connection, and Kevin and I are very excited to bring you this bonus episode. Enjoy, and tell your friends about the great stuff available on our Patreon. What's up, everybody? This is Gerardo, and I am back with you for a special episode that deals with a little bit of pedagogy and praxis, some stuff that we can kind of bring into the classroom today. Um, my guest today is Natalie Vardabasso of the EduCrush podcast. What's up, Natalie? Woo! What up, Gerardo? So good to be here. I'm so excited. Yeah, this is cool, and uh, and just appreciate you uh, weathering my uh, scheduling storm and my internet <laughs> storm and all that kind of stuff because this is the reality of doing things virtually. So uh, start us off. Uh, so uh, where are you at? Um, what's your subject, and what do you what do you do? <laughs> what do I do? That's what a do you big do? question. I know, that's the eternal <laughs> question, right? <laughs> oh, especially this year, right? Yeah. Um, well, I currently am actually, this is the first year I am not full-time in the classroom, which is a little bit of a trip. So I'm a full-time, yeah. my title, which I don't really put much into titles, but I'm an instructional design lead of assessment. So okay. I work with a K to 12 special education school to develop our assessment practices basically towards driving learning as opposed to just measuring learning. And then a big part of my project this year is to actually develop a progress reporting system that aligns with a more modernized approach to assessment. So it's gotcha. not a job that most people are like, oh, that sounds so cool. <laughs> but it's something it, that sounds, I love. it sounds important. I'll say it sounds important. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'd like to think so too. Um, but before that, I was a classroom teacher for seven years. I taught humanities, mostly in the middle years. I love middle school. It's not yeah. for everybody, but it's nope. uh, definitely, <laughs> definitely for me. I, I'm pretty lucky in that I went to a, a unique teacher preparation program that was a bit of a pilot. So there's only like 20 of us in it. And it was specifically focused on middle school. And I think okay. it's because people right off the middle school that this professor that was trying to do something different, they're like, yeah, whatever, do it with the middle school teachers because it's a black right. hole anyways. <laughs> and so I got to really experience firsthand like a different approach to education and learning. And that fired me up to get into the classroom because I never wanted to be a teacher. Yeah. I'm one of those reluctant, really? one of those yeah. reluctant teachers. Yeah, I didn't yeah. love my schooling experience. So yeah. Once I was done with it, I was in no rush to go back. <laughs> yep, yep. Ar arguably the best teachers had that kind of experience, right? That I, you actually have this empathy and you have this understanding of why school can be frustrating for a lot of kids, for most kids, I would argue, right? Exactly. I'd like to think I have a lot more empathy that way. And, you know, the kid that's 
the big behavior problem, quote unquote, whatever that means in the class, (laughs) I usually look them in the eyes and I'm like, I see you. I know exactly (laughs) who you are and what you're about. (laughs) So we usually get along great. Yeah. So you, you were teaching uh, middle grades, uh, middle school, uh, which is what we refer to it here. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and you are in Calgary, correct? Yeah. Calgary, Alberta. But I always like to say for anyone who has, I know, very, you guys are going global. I know. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I always like to tell people I'm not originally from Calgary, Alberta. I am actually BC born and raised. We have very different uh, provincial outlooks on yep. learning and oh, life. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I am here because it's actually a really friendly city. It's a lot of, it's a very transient population because yeah. there is a lot of money to be made here and I have a ton of student loans. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, you do what you got to do, right? Well, that's great. And uh, so we, um, I think we cross paths on Twitter, which is all my friends are on Twitter. Um, <laughs> Me too. And, uh, and so it was just, it's been really interesting to find the EduCrush podcast because um, it is this, um, it's, it's this great platform for discussing um, what some of the underlying issues in education are and how we address them in a complete way. And we've had a couple of conversations just on, on Twitter uh, that have really got me kind of excited about the work that you're doing and the, and the way that we can start looking at pedagogy and praxis together and as we sort of do that work. Um, so, so it's really cool. Um, we will um, also save some space at the end for you to promote, you know, where, where we can find you and where pe- people can kind of conserve, you know, consume this amazing work. Um, so in, in a recent episode, I think it was episode nine, not totally, I think mm-hmm. that's what it was. Um, it was nine. You, yeah. It was it nine? Yeah, I think it was the feedback think it was episode. Nine. Yeah. yeah. That seems right. That feels right. And so I'm going to sure. say it. Um, <laughs> at me, folks, if you think that's wrong, because, uh, because I'm just going to lean into it. Um, you asserted that the person giving us feedback is often the most significant factor in whether we embrace that feedback. And I was like, how do you know about my relationships with my principals? Um, <laughs> Not my current principal. My my current principal is dope, um, but I've I've had some yeah. uh, some frustrations that kind of spring from that idea. So, just in your research and experience, um, yeah. what are some specific ways that this happens? Well, I know about it too because of my relationships with past bosses and yeah. friends. Friends, yep. <laughs> I'm saying it with yep. air quotes. Friends, <laughs> um, principals, you name it. Uh, so, I think it started this thinking started personally for me too in times where I'm someone who loves learning like anyone in education. I love, I want to grow. I want to get better, but there's this dilemma with when someone's giving you critical feedback that, you know, maybe could help you and you have that really triggered reaction because of who they are. Like there is absolutely something interpersonal at play going on there. So it started personal for me and then it got me to reading as is usually the case and actually came across a book. It's called uh, Thanks for the Feedback by Douglas Stone and Sheila Heen. They're well known for a book they wrote called Difficult Conversations, which I'm also super into. And they dug right into this complex human side of feedback, which I think we don't talk about enough in education. Like we've, Mm. we've taken feedback and when you read a lot of the literature or you read about it in a book, it's often broken down to be super digestible. And it's like, well, it has to be timely and it has to be balanced and there has to be a lot of positive and it has to be actionable and teachers take that away and then they work really hard on their feedback and then they can't figure out why it's not landing and not working yeah and I think the human side is so much more complex and messy so what I love about this book is they get into 
the psych psychological perspectives of it all. Because when we're getting feedback, it's a really so socially threatening experience because at yeah. the core of all of our humanity, we want to be accepted and we right. want to be connected to the people around us. So if we get critical feedback, it triggers that fight, flight, or freeze of like, uh oh, yeah. <laughs> like I'm getting disconnected. Like they don't value me or they don't recognize who I am or yeah. like me. So yeah. we tend to shut down. So yeah. that's, that's where my thinking so started. That's, that's mm -hmm. so important because I think that, that, I don't know, and this, I think this is probably one of the things that really landed with me as, as I was listening to the episode was there's this very human element that oftentimes um, gets neglected. Like we treat this as just brain work and, and academic work. And we just kind of like, you want to get better. Here's how you get better. Um, and I was actually thinking, I teach an AP class and I was just thinking about this because one of my students turned in um, an essay and said, I want you to be brutally honest with me on this. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, so this is a student actively sort of advocating for some type of feedback that they are indicating to me that they're willing to receive. Um, yeah. And as a, as an early service teacher, this is my 22nd year, I would have just said, well, everybody wants that then. Right. When it may not necessarily be the case. Um, that's so interesting. So, um, so when we, when we do this, you know, um, what would you say um, the, in your experience as a teacher and in your research of, around feedback uh, to mm -hmm. students, what would you say comes to mind first when you're starting to think about what kind of feedback uh, students will, will need and what will land with them? Mm. Huge like, question. So how, yeah, I feel take, like the, the Take us into word. your mind. Like, <laughs> yeah. how, how do you yeah, start yeah. thinking about this? Um, I've come to realize that I think you can't have feedback if you don't have dialogue. Like, I think those two things are just non-negotiable yeah. um, because you have to be able to read the emotional impact of that feedback and then adjust quickly if you are putting that relationship at stake. Right. Because feedback has the ability to either build a relationship and build trust or completely yeah. shatter it to a point that it's really, really hard to start to even rebuild it. Right. Right. Um, because at the end of the day, like we all view our own actions as having good intentions behind them. Yeah, so if someone comes along and they point out something that's hiding in our blind spot, yeah. it can be devastating whether you're an adult or especially I think if you're a student, because there's always a power dynamic at play there. Yep. So we have to remember that saying something to critique a student could completely change the way they look at us. Yeah. And you have to be okay with that if you're going to be doling out a ton of feedback. And the scary yep. thing is I think there's a lot of people in this profession that really step into the role of being the superior learner in the room. So it's their yeah, role to yeah. dole that feedback out. Yep. And that scares me a little bit because that's probably when I reflect back why, I mean, I didn't really love schools because I was really passionate. I loved learning, but I didn't yep. always align in my thinking with the way the teachers saw things. Yep. And yep. so after a while you're like, Oh, I'm just going to like get through these hoops. I'm like, what do you need? What do you want? Here you go. Yeah. get me out of here so I could do something yeah. creative. <laughs> and it, becomes this, it becomes this kind of game, right? Where it's mm -hmm. kind of like, okay, I'm going to do a thing and then you do the thing in response and then we both move on with our lives. And usually moving on with our lives means give me my grade and and then we'll move on. Like, Tell me how to get an A. Yeah. And, Completely and, transactional. Yeah, it's transactional. That's really well put. Um, and, and that's kind of where we're at right now. And maybe it's because it's been finals um, and I'm trying to align the way that students are performing on academic tasks with the larger body of what our experience was this quarter. 
and um, and what the student needs for me and what the student did accomplish and we're in a pandemic and there's all these other factors that are that are uh, playing a part. Um, mm -hmm. You've talked about the importance of removing grades yeah. and some and so but I, I'm not going to have you research or rehash the entire episode people can go and listen yeah. right um, but you know and and that providing feedback during and not after the task is completed mm -hmm. um, and then choosing the right kind of feedback so this this is really interesting so in in this kind of big three right so mm -hmm. removing grades providing the feedback during and not after the task, and then choosing the right kind of feedback. Yeah. What makes this approach culturally responsive and anti-racist? Because I, I really believe it does. And I think this is where our conversation really, um, kind of where we found a really kind of cool nexus um, mm -hmm. in, in the work that we're doing. So how does it, how does that function as a culturally responsive and anti-racist practice? Mm. Uh, for me, I think especially, well, all three, but especially those last two, providing feedback during the learning and not after it's done or during the task and providing the right kind of feedback, establish that you are holding high expectations for all students, period, yep. and that you're doing everything you can to get them there. Whereas I found, like, even just from my own practice, like, I can easily openly honestly reflect on the fact that I would get all these stacks of you know essays because I was a humanities right. teacher Ugh, once they yeah. were done <laughs> I know that's the, the worst worst Sunday I have like PTSD right. for many a Sunday with essays and you're going through and you've hardly checked in along the process because you're like I'm trying to help them be independent you know good teacher right. Right. and as you're writing the feedback all I realized I was doing was just explaining why they had lost grades so none of it right. was actually meant to help them improve. It was just to justify the grade that I was about to put on the justify top of the that grade, yeah. paper. And so for me, it wasn't about how do I get every student to success? It was how do I make sure that I'm a teacher that has only a few students that are really exceptional, but everyone else has a lot of work to do. And the right. more you reflect on that, you're like, why is that the case? Like, why is it that we need to have this, this, rank order of who's at the top and who is not. And right. I mean, grading has really created that paradigm, I think, in all of our brains. Because the reason we have grades is it's a very efficient system to get kids into university. And yeah. you can't have every kid get into university because then what's the point of this really expensive private institution right. that you know, gives you some privileges for the future? So mm -hmm. you've got to have a system where some are at the top and some are at the bottom. And then if you right. think bigger picture about that, well, where does that come from? Well, all you have to do is look at history. And we've got a long history of needing to have someone in the top and then others below them in this hierarchy. So, so the system I, as it kind of exists is, is hierarchical, right? That, that mm -hmm. it, it, that it doesn't, it's hard to encourage the growth of all mm -hmm. if the way that it's designed is really only meant to privilege a few, the kind of exceptional few who can perform in that moment, right. Mm -hmm. um, to standards that may be considered kind of arbitrary. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Whereas if you step back and say, okay, and I think it starts all the way back with clarity about what is most essential, like you said, for students to know and do, putting that out there, building, uh, co-creating criteria with students so they're all very clear on what success looks like. And then you have to shift your mindset to it's my job. I'm an educator. I have to do right. whatever I can to get all students to that high performance mm -hmm. um, because all students are capable. And I think in my context, like that's something I bump up against a lot. Cause when you hear something like learning disability, you would assume yeah. well, they shouldn't be achieving at high levels cause they're, they have a learning disability. Right. <laughs> I mean, that paradigm 
needs to be broken down because I've seen kids with LDs do incredible things when the context around them shifts. So you start to realize that it's actually the context that's disabling. It's not the person who is disabled. I love that. That That's so interesting. And it kind of, it, it goes to this, um, to this assumption in, in trauma informed practice, which is that the people are not the problem that mm-hmm. people who come traumatized or people who come with diverse learning styles, cognitive diversity, um, yeah. these individuals are not the problem. It's the systems that they're trying to function in that need to adjust and need to, and need to mm-hmm. kind of deal with that a little bit. That's such an interesting point. Absolutely. Um, so one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is this, um, as we go through the feedback process and, what I kind of hear you saying is that the um, the process of giving feedback has to happen during a task and not after. Um, and, and that's like, if you want it to land in a certain way, is that kind of what mm-hmm. we're looking at there? Absolutely. I think when we talk about feedback, the purpose of it is to improve learning. And so it only makes sense that it's going to be best received when there is actually a chance to improve learning towards right. an outcome or on a task. It yeah. doesn't necessarily happen after the fact. So, yeah. yeah. Definitely. Um, yeah, so interesting. It's got me rethinking even, you know, even in things like like AP is, is they have these very specific kind of prompts that they need to write to and that they need to kind of deal with. It's got me thinking a lot about. Um, so what does it look like over a 55 minute DBQ to, uh, to be providing that that feedback in real time. Um, so with so then there's, there's another thing I'm thinking about a lot and obviously teaching history and social studies. Um, there's this kind of embedded assumption that we we don't do literacy in, and this is this is a this is a toxic assumption um, that exists on both sides of that aisle, so to speak. That um, that sort of decision makers and folks in central administration look at the work that we're doing, and they're like, "Well, that's not really literacy, so we're not going to invest much in it." Um, mm-hmm. And then we also have been guilty in the past of saying, "Well, we just teach them history stuff. We're not." here to teach them how to read and write that's for the literacy people and so I feel like we get caught in this really um toxic situation um and so I've been thinking a lot about engagement as well as cultural responsiveness like I like it's hard for me to I feel I feel like I need to convince students that actually this is something worth writing about um, mm-hmm. This is something worth thinking about. This is something worth, right. you know, investing some intellectual and spiritual energy into, right? Um, so what what do you view as the role of engagement and cultural responsiveness in oh this gosh. process? <laughs> everything? <laughs> everything? <laughs> okay. Um, this, cool. <laughs> this makes me think of, like, if we're going to talk about pedagogy, uh, yep. you know, the whole theory of constructivism, which is weirdly under attack in my province right now, but that's a whole other story. It's... <laughs> Political leaders that have no idea what it means and say they're actually publicly saying we're against constructivism, which for me is like the most racist thing you can say publicly, but no one knows what constructivism means. So they're like, right. That sounds legit. Yeah, I'm like, like, sure, that sounds like something I want to (laughs) attack. I know. And if you're you're in the know at all, you're like, well, what you're attacking is that we all have different cultural backgrounds and background knowledge and lived experiences. And we bring those into the classroom and that that frames everything we understand. So you're saying you're against that? Like, what? Anyways, but so weird. <laughs> that is the, when I hear this, like, I just think that's, that's the theory of learning. I think that we are operating in, in the 21st century, at least. And it's, 
it's the only thing that makes sense to me. Like, it's just logical. It's not, it's not even a question of, is this a good idea? It's like, we have what we know, we get new information, we process it within that framework. And that leads us to our understanding. And that is always going to be diverse because we are all very different people. Um, So I feel like this is a non-negotiable when you're talking about feedback. It's it's logical. And, you know, it's funny because I'll pose this question um, in different spaces in our district and, you know, and there are some folks who are like, yeah, absolutely. And other folks are like, I don't, I don't get it. We're trying to get, we're trying to get writing scores up. Like, and, you know, it kind of comes yeah. down to this like core assumption where it's like, no, but if they're not invested in this, we're not, we're not going to see them perform. Like we won't get data. Exactly. That's useful, right. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. And there's actually a recent episode. It's next one coming out on edgy crash where we talk about this very thing because uh, an instructional coach I work with who's phenomenal, she knows that you can't teach kids to write if they are not invested in, like you said, in the topic. So she created this whole digital storytelling unit where the stories they're telling are their own, which is a whole learning journey in and of itself because they don't believe their stories have any value for all kinds of reasons. And yeah. the more they get invested in telling this personal story, you see them suddenly revise and pull in more juicy vocab and yeah. get feedback from their peers. And they're like aggressively editing to make sure it's the best quality work they could possibly do because we've also built in an authentic audience where they're yeah. going to be sharing it in this film festival at the end. And they're going to be doing a voiceover oh, reading great. their story. So all those pieces that drive engagement, suddenly you see the learning happened. Whereas I'll walk into a different classroom with a teacher who calls me in because they're like, oh, these kids just don't care about writing. And I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, well, I'm trying to help them learn how to revise and they just won't do it. Like, can you help me? And I'm like, okay, let's back it up. And they're like, well, we're practicing for the standardized test. So I gave them a prompt that is from the standardized test last year and they all have to write on it. And we're trying to do it in the same kind of process they'd use on the test. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, you're like, <laughs> all like right. Back it all the way up. Like so zero that's engagement. The that's yeah. the why. There's always yep. a why. Yep. If you're not engaged, you're not learning. It's- yeah. That that's I mean that that's so important because you know I, I think I was taught as as an early service teacher that you know when a student asks why are we doing this um, that you should actually answer that question and you should also ensure that why you're doing this is authentic in some way and what a great idea with with this um, film festival and that was a conversation mm-hmm. that I was having with my AP students. Um, where they express some frustration. They're like, well, but in English class, we're being told to write this way, but in history class, you're telling us to write another way. And I said, yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate how that feels really confusing, but at the same time, there are lots of different types of writing, right? So mm-hmm. you're not, so you're not going to write yeah. um, a literary analysis in the same way that you're going to write a DBQ. And there's just lots of different ways to write, but that's something we need to actually name for you that, mm-hmm. you know, that, people who are novelists are novelists for a reason and, and they're often not historians because there are certain mm-hmm. types of writing that suit different purposes. And that's a piece that I've really been kind of thinking about. Uh, there's been mm-hmm. great um, examples, you know, and this, this is why Twitter is like the best PD ever. Um, totally. But like, yeah, exactly. Um, but there's been great examples of people doing like eBooks and, you know, student produced eBooks and those kinds of things that center on things that are really important to them um, and that, that will resonate with the students. And, you know, cause I think that, I think it's not that students don't care about writing. I think that we've made them so um, insecure about their writing over mm-hmm. a period of years. I teach high school um, mostly that by the time I get them as 10th graders, they've just felt so damaged by learning 
about <laughs> what they think writing is. Um, yeah. They're just really insecure and they're very hesitant to jump in. Yeah. They, their writing's probably just been nitpicked by teachers giving all right. this deficit focused feedback over the years. They're like, oh, I can't do anything right. This also reminds me of, there's a book that in our context, we all quite love. It's called Read Aside. Same concept with just with reading. That is written yeah. by an author from California. His name is Kelly Gallagher. Okay. But we, our practices in school, like actively over the years, just kill <laughs> the love of reading and writing because at the core of it, like, why do we read and write? We do it to communicate. And I think that's what's missing right now in education is just a reframing of the ends and the means. So the end of education always used to be to get the information because we were the purveyors of knowledge and then the internet happened. And so the ends and the means have shifted where we now, information is still important, but we need it so that we can communicate so that we can think critically so that we can collaborate, you know, all this. Um, But I don't know if that's totally landed in all the individual contexts of schools yet like people can no, say definitely it, not. <laughs> but then there's still like we got to get this content we got to get them ready for yep. the test and i get there's yep. so much pressure with standardized scope testing. and sequence scope and sequence yeah. <laughs> that, that's what we're hearing a lot about right now is totally. we have to students in a scope and sequence and you know um and and it's and it's interesting because when when you ask students about writing and reading they will tell you why they don't like writing or reading um when they read, it's because we don't give them choice. And when they write, it's because we nitpick their work. And (laughs) these, like, it's pretty straightforward. These are not, these are not like abstract and, you know, vague concepts. This is what they're telling us what they want. Exactly. But the pressure of that's the way we've always done it. And, you know, it's it's just tradition of schooling. I had to go through it and it sucked. So you're going to have to go through it and welcome to the world. But the funny thing is when we're out in the world, none of us read books because someone's telling us to and they're like pacing us through the chapters and like asking us questions to see if we understood no like Like, even even in book club like that doesn't really happen like there will be book club questions but like you're you're lucky if you actually get to the book as a conversation right exactly um, yeah but I think I think also with writing you know and this is not to say that that becoming a skilled communicator through writing is unimportant Mm -hmm. but it is to say that um, that, that if we're able to create a context where they're motivated to write, where they, where they have ideas that they want to get out there and they want to refine mm-hmm. and they feel like somebody's going to see their ideas and care about their ideas. Mm-hmm. I just feel like that's when you start seeing all the games, right? Mm-hmm. Big time. Yeah. I Absolutely. Know, and I, to go back to engagement, I feel like a piece we're missing too goes all the way back to the educators in question because I can't think of any experience in my career thus far where we've all been brought into a room and we say, okay, here's the goal. One of the goals is communication. What does that look like to you? What does that feel like to you? Like what does success mean to you and what evidence would you accept of that? And that Mm. is where I think we're missing that like feedback starts to go wrong all the way back at that point is that when you don't have that conversation, regardless of how well the feedback's delivered, even if it's through dialogue, if the experience in one classroom of what one teacher's version of success is, is very different than another, students are still going to get that sense of like distrust from whatever it is you tell them and be like, yeah, but miss so-and-so oh, says so that they love right. my exclamation points. And you're like, yep. not at the end of every sentence though. Like, <laughs> you know, right, right. so we're not so having enough engagement engagement. I think all the way along the line for the feedback yeah. to work. And it, and it sounds like there's a, there's a, there's a community imperative to kind of, getting on the same page about how we're going to treat writing. So, you know, mm-hmm. would it be helpful in, in your view to, to be able to say to your staff that in regards to writing, like we need to set some, 
we need we need to set a culture of writing and of, of what mm-hmm. we say in our building what writing is for like is that, is mm-hmm. that the kind of thing that is helpful yeah absolutely the culture of writing um also just unpacking like what are the what outcomes will we accept for writing for each year because i mean you could go into the curriculum and i'm sure the American curriculum is no different than ours. It's a very dense right. academic document <laughs> yeah. and you could take a, a thousand different things because, you know, we yep. all have different backgrounds. So depending on yep. who's reading it, they could take whatever they want from it and say, well, yep. this is writing. But I think you have to clarify per grade, what is the general outcomes? And then what are we going to accept as evidence in this grade? And hopefully there's some kind of a vertical alignment there. And I think that starts to break down to all the distress that even happens between teachers where like, you know, you're in grade 12 <laughs> and you get a bunch of students and you look at them and you're like, oh, your teachers taught you nothing. They know nothing about learning. What did you learn writing. last year? You learned nothing. You know? yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, it's just more transparency for everyone that it's like, we're all actually trying to work towards the same goals. And how do we even help each other if we don't even agree with what it is we're trying to do? And so we can't give each other feedback as teachers between the grades yeah. about what we're seeing and what might work. And like you said, I love that culture of, culture of literacy. That is like... Culture always wins. And I feel like if you haven't built that culture of literacy right from the get-go, but why we read yeah. and why we write, then yeah. all of this becomes very, very challenging and you just get lost in a lot of conflict. Yeah. This is, that, that's so important because I think that um, as, you, as you start navigating this and start giving students, um, you know, sort of the, the freedom to grow as writers and to feel inger- encouraged as writers. And that as a staff, you're going to say that we're, we're just going to agree that writing is important. And we're just going to agree that in the context of our school, of our community, we're going to, we're going to figure out what writing is for, and mm-hmm. we're going to try to support that work. I just, you know, it's funny because so much of this feels kind of, kind of straightforward. <laughs> like, it does, right? I mean, and there's a lot of research, obviously, to back this up, but it's yeah. almost like, why do you need it? We do better with things when we care about them. And mm-hmm. we, when we have encouragement, when we're sort of, when, when we're given positive ways forward, uh, and, yeah. and when we kind of talk about what we're going to what, what kind of outcomes we're going to expect and support students towards. Yeah. And then to connect it back to your, like the idea of cultural responsiveness, if it's something I care about and I'm sharing it with you and we're engaging in a feedback conversation, you're ultimately going to learn more about me and who I am and where I come from. And I think at the core of great education should be that we learn about ourselves and about others and about the world's that we are entering into. And oh, so I, I think when so you, I think when you take engagement out of it all together, you're completely disregarding the individuals that are coming through that classroom in the quest of just, you know, getting through your curriculum. And that's where we're having this, all these cultural breakdowns where we live in a society where there still is this hierarchy between all these different social identities. And we've got to start in the classroom, I think, to break that down. Definitely. Definitely. That's great. So they often in the room, um, Mm -hmm. remote, teaching in in our district we're still 100 remote uh there's a plan to come back in mid to late january but there have been other plans to return that haven't been able to happen so um how how would one approach this feedback um you know kind of imperative this feedback conversation through a remote setting where there just aren't opportunities to just sit with a student more or less individually and do that work have you seen things that have worked or is this something that is just really going to be challenging until we're back in person? I think the first thing that we 
as educators all have to challenge for ourselves is that just because it seems like you've got this really engaged quiet class behind a computer screen with their cameras off yeah. you bombing through all your content during remote learning is yep. not a good strategy um so choosing maybe the one or two outcomes that you really want to accomplish in that unit i think is step one like don't do everything like pair it way back because yep. just cognitive overload is so real in remote learning for both the teachers and the students. So do less and then really focus your energy on cycles of feedback so that you can hopefully get to each kid and give them multiple attempts. Um, And obviously there's barriers. Like even if you're doing it through video conferencing and the student chooses to turn their video on, you're you're still losing out on a bit of those uh, nonverbal cues. I think that's just important to acknowledge, but I have seen some interesting coaching going on where it's one-on-one and there's more time for teachers. I don't know about the schedules that you all are working off Mm -hmm. of, but um, we've built in a lot of like connect time and so longer periods, longer periods of time where it is an expectation that the teacher is engaging with one student at a time and you might not only make it through three to four, but if you've built that in every single day, then it just becomes a part of the habit of what instruction looks like as opposed to students going from class, 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 and then going yeah. home with like five hours of homework. Yeah. And 12 hours on a screen and you know, yeah. that kind of thing. That's so interesting. The, the sort of the connect time seems like a really mm-hmm. interesting thing, but mm-hmm. what you're saying is less is more, right? Less is um, more. <laughs> yeah. I had one unit. It was a unit we did. It was grade 10 lit circles unit. But first of all, we realized we can't have them read whole books. That was just unrealistic. So we yeah. brought it down to short stories and then we uh-huh. gave it a theme that it was all about like values. It was kind of a dystopian unit, which looking back was kind of maybe not the right thing with the pandemic going on. But anyways, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so we gave it a theme. It was all about values. So we all gave them this like access point of talk. Tell us about your values, where you come from, what you're all about. And then we had named the literacy outcomes right from the get go and made them very clearly stated for the students. We built the criteria with them. And then over the next, it was like eight weeks of that unit, um, they'd have to read a short story and then do activities that engaged with those skills over and over and over. And we just made sure to give them as much personalized coaching and talking through it. And okay, here's what I noticed. What did you think was really strong this week? What stood out for you? And just continued that conversation from the beginning to the end. And in some ways it was kind of brilliant because way less planning you've picked your eight stories the students cycle through they get they get choice so they just pick the story they want that week and they almost go into like a book club type of thing where they had you know breakout rooms where they discuss and they would do some note taking and then once in a while we throw in like a creative activity that they could choose any story they wanted to dig into but it was all planned it kind of just repeated itself (laughs) so the real then you realize that like the the actual heart of teaching shouldn't be like going away and planning elaborate lessons for every single day but spending the majority of your time with those students one-on-one talking about their learning and talking about where they're at and talking about where the work is strong and then hopefully when the relationships there, giving them some pointers for how to make it stronger. And yeah. it ended up being like pretty successful considering yeah. it was a pandemic and right. a lot of people were having trouble getting their students to class. We had yep. pretty good turnout and engagement. So I think that That's is, awesome. there's definitely a strategy to take away there. That's so dope. Well, and I think too, when you start talking about giving students choice and personalized feedback, like I think those are the things that actually like make students feel seen because they know, mm-hmm. They know which teachers don't really look at their work. And this isn't a slam against teachers. Teachers are overworked. Teachers are overwhelmed. We are also living in this pandemic. And there's some research to suggest that it's it's negatively impacting adults more than young people, um, Mm -hmm. which is in in the US anyway. And that's been kind of interesting to kind of follow. But this whole idea of clarity 
of what we're doing and what's expected to me feels really anti-racist because what happens mm -hmm. is if you don't provide clarity, then the students who come from educated middle-class backgrounds who know how to play school, right? They know how to kind of play the game. They know how to talk about things. They know if they don't understand the prompt that they can just ramble a bunch of things and eventually they'll land on something. But the kids who come from- My whole school experience, basically. <laughs> right, I mind too, yeah. And so, and I was one that was kind of on both sides. Like I yeah. really, really love to learn. I had a, you know, when you talk about a positive outlook on, on your own writing, um, I was told really early in high school that I was a really good writer. And so mm -hmm. like, and so I think that actually, because I was a male, it also made me lazy with my writing because I'm kind of like, oh, well, I'm already good. I don't have to learn. And I had to <laughs> learn that a little bit. But I think, um, I think it is really interesting because those students who do come from impoverished backgrounds, communities of color, immigrant backgrounds who don't have the same context and understanding of how to play that school game, you know, mm -hmm. they struggle a lot because they just can't play the game in the same way that our white middle class students in the U.S. Um, can can play it. And so mm -hmm. when you identify, you're like, th these are the things we're going to read. Choose the one that seems cool. If you read mm -hmm. two sentences, the one you choose and it's whack, choose something else, you know, exactly. like, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, and the students will always say, I, I can't remember the last time I finished the book. And I'll say to them, yeah, me too. I'll get halfway through a book and realize I don't like this book and I'll stop yeah. reading, <laughs> you yeah, know, because totally. that's what grown people do. That's what real readers do. Exactly. Um, and, um, you know, and the same thing kind of goes for writing. I've written a bunch of stuff that I'm like, well, this is dumb. I don't want to do this, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and you go another direction. But I think that that sense of like, this is what you have to choose from. These are the specific things that I would like you to, you know, focus on as you write, to think about, to reflect on and to develop. Um, then you're giving clarity to students who maybe yeah. are not used to getting clarity. And I would just say that those types of clear expectations are actually pretty anti-racist because you're, you're mm -hmm. leveling the playing field. You're saying that, you know, everybody understands what you're working towards now. That's really interesting as you're saying that, because a huge piece of that is models too, using models of excellence. Yeah. So we would give them a couple at the beginning, ask them to draw from their background knowledge. But as we were moving through the unit, we would pick student examples that were just exceptional. And we had recordings of their discussions as well, which was kind of cool. So to reflect on how people were engaging in a discussion or mm -hmm. how they were responding to a text. And then we would unpack it as a group and be like, okay, what's working here? Let's add it to our criteria. What can you do with that next week? Is there one thing we can all take away? And yeah. it's so great that you put it in the anti-racism frame because I think that might help teachers who are really resistant to that practice to maybe reflect a little bit deeper because I've heard before when you talk about this kind of stuff, people say like, Oh, that's cheating. Like if you're right. showing them what you want, then you're not seeing any learning. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And yeah, I always there, struggle there to know how thing. to respond to that. I'm like, but it's yeah. just, it seems like the right thing to do. It seems like, you know, Brene Brown says clear as kind, like yeah, you know, yeah. there's a white, white woman, we can all listen to her. Right. But it's like, it's actually like, it's an anti-racist, pedagogical practice is to just lay it out there and like you said even the playing field I love that frame yeah I mean I think that transparency is is so important which I think is what has been so interesting about just following this work that you've been doing is that it's it, it's it's honest and it puts you in it changes the teacher-student relationship right where, where you're no longer you're no longer the gatekeeper to progress Right. You're, you're a, you're an ally in progress. You like, and that one, one habit I've tried to get into the last couple of years is I don't talk 
anymore about you. I don't say you all need to start doing this a little bit more. You all, you know, this kind of thing. It's, it's always we. It's like, well, we need to strengthen mm-hmm. what we're doing with some of this argumentative writing. I think we need to build a, <laughs> find ways that we can build our background knowledge and we can start doing yeah. that because I do want them to know that like we're actually on the same team. Um, yeah. and we're all trying to kind of be successful. It's sort of like a coach, right? Like the, if the right. coach, if the coach of a, a, you know, I'm a big basketball fan. If, if, you know, if a basketball coach withheld all of his expectations from his players <laughs> and just hoped that they kind of would stumble across it, it would be chaos. They'd lose every game. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, exactly. <laughs> they would have these ideas of, of who, of what they're supposed to be doing and they may not all be the same and that could be really complex. So, I mean, in the class, and I've heard people say this in the classroom and where they've said that, well, objective setting is one thing, but what about discovery? And I'm like, okay, <laughs> I think that's fine for some people. And, you know, there are some expeditionary learning programs and yeah. programs like that that really do value that kind of discovery. But how do you support them to make these discoveries, I think, is what's really important. So, mm-hmm. And who's making the final judgment call on whether or not their discovery was valid? Yeah. And if it's the teacher, then what are they discovering? Your expectations? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. After the fact, once they don't meet them. <laughs> right. My, my mentor used to call that the guess what's in my head game. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and exactly. it's like, nope, that wasn't in my head. So you get a D. Um, yeah. Oh, th- uh, this is, this has been a great uh, conversation. Um, so okay. we do typically end with, uh, with one question is kind of fun. Now, as, as somebody who values writing i feel like you could probably do top five rappers so oh, i feel I like sure a comfortable could. thing to you all right <laughs> totally all right yeah all right let's hit us with it <laughs> oh man first of all uh i had this has taken me like days to reflect on this was the hardest question it's, of all of the ones yep. that you have asked <laughs> um because i was like oh my gosh i don't actually like tend to rank them like i don't i just i love oh it doesn't have to be that either it can just be five five okay. that are hitting right now but, but you've hitting. already let's done do that work. you've done the work <laughs> and then I had to like, I had this whole debate last night with my partner. I'm like, well, can I choose groups? Like they said rappers. And he's like, you can't choose a group. You can't do that. That's a cop out. Oh, so I was like, no, oh, so yeah. I got to think well, even harder now. Okay. You can make any rules you want. Like we've okay, had good. people sneak in like 25 rappers in their top five. So <laughs> you're like, <"All> right. <laughs> um, okay. So I think lyrically, my absolute favorite is Kendrick Lamar. Uh, okay. comes up a lot on here. Uh, I think the first song I ever heard by him was ADHD. Uh, back okay. in like section 80 and i oh, love yeah. the damn album just yeah. every single song on it is like it's one of the last albums that when it came out we were actually leaving on a road trip and so i just like downloaded it from apple music and we listened to it just on repeat for seven and a half hours yes All pretty right. rare that i can just dig into an album that much like not only was it yep. like the sound the production quality but Every time I listened, I felt like I was picking up a different meaning from the lyrics. Yep. I was going deeper and deeper. And then we'd have to like pause and like, like unpack at a song for 20 minutes because we were just so fired up by it. So love Kendrick. All There's right. not many that can, brilliant. Get, that can get me thinking that much. Yeah. Um, lyrically, also music wise, I love J. Cole. J. Cole yes. Fan. Oh, that's great stuff. Yeah. yeah. You're a J. Cole fan as well. All right. Uh, so all his albums, Cole World. Uh, 2014 for ourselves drive kod on and on and on i just i don't think there's can a beautiful song that i've can you say that one more that. time the audio did something really weird did it um, oh, no. yeah just like the just, whole thing from the beginning just right after j cole uh j, so cole. Said j. cole and then it got then it got garbled jeez, <laughs> oh, internet love all his albums like i was trying to like okay. is there a song or is there an album or is there something that really stands out to me and he's one of those like just consistent rappers like everything he puts out is just so 
well-produced. Like there's a yeah. beauty, there's a beauty oh, in this yeah. music. I think that's the best way to describe it. Like it's yeah. just, yeah, artistic, lyrical, rhythmic. And just when you think you've got him figured out, you're like, oh, this is kind of like his style and what he's about. He'll do something and you'll be like, oh, yeah. that's totally different. And yeah, so and I like, just- And like sometimes he's, he's being really serious and sometimes he's playing with you. you totally. Know, like, yeah. yeah, he's a fascinating, I'd love to, he's someone <laughs> who I feel like I would love to just like hang out with on like a Friday night and like yeah. chat about life. Like he seems chop like he's so, so chop chill and so, <laughs> chop it up. Yep. So chill and so cool to hang out with. Uh, yeah. This next one, the next one, I don't know if you've, you've heard of him. He's actually Canadian. But okay. Like, and it's not Drake. So right. bet you were Wait, expecting there's a that. rapper in Canada that's not Drake. Hold on. This is a lot. Right? I know. It's, take that in for a second. Right. Uh, so Kanon, he is uh, originally from Somalia. In yes. Canada. Do you know him? Uh, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. One of my okay, coworkers good. introduced me to his work and um, oh yeah, it's, it's beautiful stuff. Yes. But oh, you, you, so I have a, a whole story behind Kanon. So I'd actually, cool. I'd only ever heard this one cheesy song that Coca-Cola picked up and it was on yep. the radio at the time. I thought it was cheesy because I just heard it on the radio all the time, waving yep. flag. But I was two versions. In my... like his version is dope. Like, so, right. I mean, and then there's like really cool, the but... pop Olympic yeah. version. Yeah. yeah and yeah, so that's yeah. the one that Which I also heard. But... It's kind of, they're all good. They kind of hit you in the yeah, feels, but I didn't really feel it until it was 2010. I was living downtown Vancouver and we got the Olympic games that year. And I have never lived in a city that hosted the Olympic games and I didn't know what to expect. Oh, yeah. And it was unbelievable. First of all, like the energy, yeah. the, the just insane 24 hour partying that goes on yeah. in like this weird patriotic way. And as Canadians, we don't yeah. tend to feel very patriotic. We're not not as much like our Southern neighbors, you guys. Uh, yeah. I feel like US of A is definitely a little bit more like, yes, we're American. Whereas in Canada, we're like, sorry, we're here. Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, so that was really oh, weird feeling yep. patriotic. And we got free tickets to his show and they were like front row. I can't even remember how I got them, but I was like, I don't really wow. know Kanon. And I always got that song on the radio. Wow. And yep. it was like, I don't say this to be hyperbolic. It was a spiritual experience. I have wow. never been to a live show like that. Like he would do some wow. whole pieces where it was just him spoken word and it would like yeah. bring the entire because he's got that troubadour vibe right oh, like, it, yep. like i'm just like i have goosebumps going back to it and he finished with waving flag and i didn't know in that moment like the weight of the song but so you have to imagine everyone's in full canada gear painted yep. faces canadian flags and he sings the song and everybody's waving their flags and singing and i just was like oh this is so cool like wow. me and all my friends left and we that were all really just cool. like in shock and we love hip-hop and this yep. we're like he's one of the best he is one of the greatest of all times and yeah, we've never heard of him before so he's brilliant yeah cool so i heard yeah. of him yep <laughs> all yeah. right yeah so we're at three uh three uh and then something totally different the one group that i was like okay they make the yep. list uh right now i'm loving round the jewels especially rtj4 their okay. newest album yeah i feel like because it came out in the spring i think of last year right as we we're just going into we were in lockdown and we had just witnessed you know, the murder of George Floyd on all media and all of that was blowing up. And this album for me just sounded like the moment. <laughs> yeah. And so I found it was the only thing I could listen to that just like channeled my frustration and my anger and yeah. my helplessness and all of it. And I love their lyricism. I love the sound. Just love Run yeah. the Jewels. So great. Oh, that's good. So I think that's the first appearance Run the Jewels has made on these top five. So oh, really? awesome. 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 Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it was, so eventually we're going to put this all out on Instagram with like people's like top fives in a, in a post and, you know, yeah. see what everybody else picked. 
yeah. yeah. No, that's a great choice, though. That's a great, because that album does, I mean, as the students say, it does hit different. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it, you know, very much one that defines the moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then last but not least, this is kind of just like, <laughs> if I'm being honest with myself, and at first I was like, choose one of the greats. And I was like, no, who do you put on when you want to like throw on your bucket hat and turn up? <laughs> like, just All right. be honest. Yeah. So it's, it's schoolboy Q. I'm like, <laughs> <Yes>. you know, <laughs> don't judge me. <laughs> when I no, look at the never. lyrics, I'm like, as a woman, I have to sometimes just be like, okay, just go with the, go with the vibe. And yeah, I'm like, just, don't listen to what he's saying. It's a turn up song. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's like, if I'm at a party and I, manage to get like any kind of a remote or my hands on the music like I'll always put on school like you it's just what I'm known for so that's great hey, we, we, we all have that we all have that a little bit like it's it, for me it's like when people are would tell me it's like well I like some of Tupac's stuff but not all of it I'm like no that's not how that works it's not how hip-hop works like you yeah. know I, I, I can enjoy lots of different types of tracks to give me a different sort of vibe a different kind of feeling and you know yeah no apologies at all that's a good top five i, I have to say yeah. um there's a there's the right sort of combination of aestheticism and fun and complexity mm-hmm. and you know just kind of the that that kind of spiritual connection to the music um yeah. it's good i approve thanks thank it's you <laughs> well thank you for taking the time to be here today i hope lockdown treats you well <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, and, uh, during the holidays. You know, yeah, no, it's a good time. We we should be locked down, but we're not because this is America. Can't tell anybody what to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, no. Well, at least you guys is, are remote, which is crazy. Like in yeah. Canada, I thought we had it figured out, but we only went remote for grade 7 to 12 like three weeks yeah. ago. And yeah. our numbers are insane. Like, I mean, quick yeah. Google right now. Alberta is like probably one of the biggest hotspots oh, anywhere. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, our numbers are through the roof also because people just chose to travel for Thanksgiving and, mm-hmm. you know, and we're going to probably see another spike in a couple of weeks and then another one a couple of weeks after that. And it's been, it's been pretty maddening. Um, we have succeeded in absolutely politicizing this pandemic and it's been extremely disappointing, although not altogether surprising, <laughs> yeah. you know, given the way that uh, we do things here, <laughs> you know, but <laughs> It is what it is, but really, uh, thank you for taking the time today. And I think folks are going to be really excited to to kind of hear this conversation and and the the just very common sense, straightforward, but really informed approach to feedback. And you know, hopefully, we can uh, get this out and uh, get people reflecting a little bit during their time off. Oh, thanks, Rod. It was my pleasure. It was a ton of fun. Love talking with it. Talking yeah. with you. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> I made it through without any like big screw ups until the very end. Uh, love oh, it's all you. good. Love it's your all work. Good. Say hi to Kev. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Here. And we'll do we'll do this uh, we'll do this with him at some point, and uh, it'll, it'll definitely be fun. Okay.